Hey everybody, it's uh, Paul here. Uh, quick uh, update in the life of uh, my family and uh, and Potza one since we are now linked. Uh, my family and I uh, had to uh, put down our, our dog of 11 and a half years, Libby. Libby uh, was a tremendously sweet, loving dog that um, I consider a fourth child. Uh, she will be deeply missed, and I just uh, didn't want to miss the opportunity to commemorate her life and how special it was to uh, my family. And with that, on to the episode. Welcome to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. Aaron Albrecht is an activist, thinker, and accomplished old-time Missouri fiddler. He's actually the one playing the song you're hearing right now. This episode, Aaron gives us the lowdown on his love for the deep tradition of old-time music, the appropriately named precursor to bluegrass, folk, and country that goes back centuries. Ever the activist, Aaron also tells us how he led a forum on drum warfare while in college that culminated with a keynote speech by Colin Powell's former chief of staff, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, a prominent critic of the Iraq war and drone programs. Finally, if you are a purchaser of Amazon products, you'll be interested to hear about the year that Aaron spent working at an Amazon warehouse. So here's Aaron. Aaron Albrecht, thank you How's for being on the podcast, my man. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Daniel and Paul. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, great so, to have, have you on. Hold on a second. So what, the hat is? Blues, St. Louis Blues. Oh, yeah, their first one ever, right? Yeah, we won. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. I was, I was glad to see them win, for sure. Yeah, it was phenomenal. I was so excited about that. <laughs> Where were you when they won? Where was I now? I must have been in, I was in Edwardsville, Illinois, so right outside of St. Louis. Okay, nice. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Very um, cool. Aaron, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the intro tune that we heard at the beginning of this episode? Yeah, thanks for asking. So that is a tune that I uh, was playing on the fiddle there. It's a fiddle tune, a traditional fiddle tune from Southern Illinois. The name of the tune is Down in Little Egypt. And uh, what you might not know is that Southern Illinois was always known as Little Egypt. And, uh, and that's because the two rivers that meet down in Southern Illinois are the Ohio River and the, well, there's, I guess there's, three rivers, the Mississippi, well, the Missouri meets the Mississippi, which meets the Ohio down in, down in Cairo, Illinois. And those throughout the, you know, foundation of our country when commerce was done on rivers and stuff, those were two of the most important rivers for travel, commerce, uh, you know, that those are the rivers that connect the entire country. They come together in that one point in Cairo, Illinois, and some of the best music has come out of Cairo, Illinois. Lots of your uh, blues music, your traditional country blues music. Uh, people would come from Kentucky and Tennessee up into Southern Illinois, and then over to St. Louis, where you know um, ragtime music and blues music and country, you know that kind of music was known for coming right out of that part of the country. 
And you're saying Cairo, and is it spelled the same way as Cairo, like the real? Yeah, yeah. and so in southern Illinois, they have lots of uh, towns with Egyptian names like Cairo and uh, Thebes and Memphis and all, all those towns down there have Egyptian names. And well, what I was saying about those two rivers is it just like the Euphrates and the t Tigris, you know, mm -hmm. so that's why they call it Little Egypt. And this tune is called Down in Little Egypt. And, uh, and it's a tune from where I grew up. That's awesome, man. So you, when you were a kid, you played violin, uh, which is physically the same thing as a fiddle, but the style is completely different. And so you were classically trained. Uh, and then at some point in your life, you became introduced to Missouri fiddling, the Missouri fiddling tradition specifically. Uh, tell us about how that happened and how you got into it. Sure. Well, first, I'd just like to correct you that a violin and a fiddle are two different things. <laughs> and, and, and how are they different? Well, What's the two, difference? In two, in two respects. The first one is that um, a violin has strings, but a fiddle has strings. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is that, um, well, one you can spill beer on, so... <laughs> Yeah, what, one, one comes with a uh, beer smell. Right, yeah. yeah. That and campfires. <laughs> Though, yeah, just, just like you're describing, I grew up playing violin, classical violin. Uh, I'd play in church, you know, and, uh, and both of my brothers played music. My oldest brother, Nathan, played violin. My other brother, Andrew, played piano. And uh, at church, we were known as the Disciples. That was our band name. <laughs> and we play hymns at church and that was my dad's idea he he put us up to that whole thing and we, none of us liked it and but we but now it's fun to look back at <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah and so I grew up playing classical violin I love classical violin music I love classical music uh but then later on when I went to college in Missouri uh there's a fellow who lived across the hall from me who also played violin though he played the fiddle and I'd never tried playing fiddle music ever before. And, but when I watched him do it, it completely blew me out of the water. And I decided I have to learn how to play fiddle music, you know. And so that's how that all began. Wow. And, and you really like, you took like an almost obset, obsession level interest in fiddle music. I didn't, I, I didn't see it until you were already too far gone, basically. <laughs> and you were telling me that you'd stay up at night not able to sleep because fiddle tune after fiddle tune was running through your head and you had to just play it and rock back and forth <laughs> like you're in some institution. Um, so you really took like a, a, like a zealous approach to, to learning about fiddle tunes and not just the tunes themselves, but the stories behind who wrote them and the culture of the people that, that enjoyed these tunes and wrote these tunes and played these tunes. So uh, talk about that a little bit, like this, the culture behind Missouri fiddling and some of the greats. I'd love to. Thank you for asking. That's a great question. Um, and one that I love talking about. And, uh, and just like you're saying, yeah, there's a time and probably still exists today that I'd listen, you know, listen that, you know, last night I fell asleep listening to fiddle music. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you were asking a little bit about, um, you know, about the, the culture behind old time fiddling music and, and well, you know, this is our, you know, one of our oldest pieces of heritage, living, living cultural uh, 
heritage of, you know, expression that uh, has existed all throughout, you know, our country before our country was even a country. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and there's, there's different, you know, fiddle music, traditional American fiddling music is played differently all across the country. Every, you know, everywhere you go, they may play the same tunes, but they definitely play them differently. And where I learned to play the fiddle, we had our own way of playing the tunes and a whole panoply of, of, of heroes, of fiddlers who's passed on this tradition from one fiddler to the next. You know, fiddling is something that you learn by um by by you learn by ear you know you learn from a mass you learn from more experienced fiddlers you don't learn by reading notes on a page so that's one thing that makes our fiddling tradition unique is that you don't learn you don't learn by reading music off a page like you would in classical music you learn by listening to fiddlers and trying to uh, imitate and copy and 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 after a while create your own your own way of playing and, and every fiddler has their own way of playing and no two fiddlers sound alike and that's for sure but it seems especially in the old time fiddling traditions that every great fiddler they might not be like any other fiddler but they can name off the top of their head two three four really great fiddlers that they basically give all the credit to for for full-on inspiration absolutely so are there any of those for you like who are some of your uh, inspirations playing fiddle? Yeah, pants? my my fiddling heroes. Yeah, well, um, you know, for those for those fiddlers that you mentioned, it was always the ones they learned from, and the people who I learned from. Number one was my friend in college, the one who lived across the hall from me. His name is Richard Shoemaker, who's my age, and he he's from Columbia, Missouri, and um, and he was what I would call a protege of the, uh, you know, a real virtuoso, a genius of the Missouri style fiddle, right? And he learned from a, a number of folks, though one of the main people he learned from was a man, a man by the name of Dr. Howard Marshall. And Dr. Howard Marshall is another one of my inspirations and fiddling heroes who I've learned quite a, li quite a bit about, not only the stylings of the music, not only how the music is supposed to sound, but like you're discussing the history of our music and, and really what makes it great. And Dr. Marshall, I'm so proud to call him a mentor of mine because he's such a prolific scholar of the history of Missouri fiddling music. In fact, not only is he, he uh, made a career out of, you know, the, this this you know writing writing about the history of this music. Dr. Marshall is the chair of the anthropology department at the University of Missouri in Columbia, where he studied all his life art history. You know vernacular music, vernacular architecture of Missouri. He's another one of my heroes. Uh, he's current. He's working on the third book in a trilogy this is his magnum opus of a trilogy of the history of Missouri fiddling music. And uh, um, so right now he's working on his third book, which brings it to the present. The first book focused on from, from the founding of our country, uh, you know, throughout the 18, 1800s. The second book focuses on the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s. And the third book focuses on today and, and, and where this music is going in the future. So Dr. Marshall is another one of my mentors and heroes. And just to name a few others, um, uh, the folks that I play with. Uh, and then, you know, 
our fiddling heroes in Missouri are always uh, Pete McMahon is one, Cyril Stinnett is another, Dwight Lamb is a third. Uh, you would have, um, you know, Charlie Walden, of course, Bob Holt from down in the Ozarks, Cleo Persinger, you know, a Jake Hockemeyer. You know, you can name, I could name you 20 of them. And, uh, oh, I know it. And all of us have, all the, you know, few of us that play Missouri style fiddling have studied these masters, their lives, their recorded works, upside down and backwards, and, uh, you know, do our best to sound just like them, even though we can't. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so cool um, to, I guess, like, it's not, we're in a time now when you can have inspiration, not just from mentors, which will happen for a lot of fillers, but also because of like this hybrid where you have super modern technology that allows anybody in the world to have access to these like super rich, valuable archives of old time music. Anybody in the world can have inspiration from all 20 of those fiddlers in your head if yeah. they wanted to. So. How do you feel about the 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 way that it's such like a deeply traditional and sort of person to person tradition in its roots, but now it's becoming this anyone can go and uh, and teach themselves almost and just imitate from the internet, uh, like and now it's all technologically spread out. Yeah, that's a really good question, Daniel. You've really hit a nail on the head on one of these most you know core issues of you know fiddling music that's you know one of the core issues that fiddling music is facing today i mean I, I remember listening back to some tapes of a fiddler from springfield missouri by the name of art galbraith he lived he was he lived up until he died in the 90s in the early 90s and he died an old man and in those tapes of him playing you can hear him talking about when he was a boy he was learning fiddle from his uncles and when they would be sitting there and fiddling and talking, they'd be talking, they'd be, you know, they'd be talking about what their parents told them about the Civil War. So here we have a tradition that's been passed on from the older generation to the younger generation throughout time that has remained, in one sense, has remained constant over time, but in another sense has changed. Though you know, these, you know, but you can see how, you know, in one fiddling generation, they went from talking, talking about memories that therefore, you know, people were talking about the Civil War, to when this fiddler Art Galbraith died, he had seen, you know, airplanes invented, the dropping of the nuclear bomb, the invention of the internet, and all, you know, in just such a few generations, the world had changed so much, you know, and though fiddling, in a, in a sense, had remained the same, though it did change in one distinct way, which is the way you're discussing here, which is the way people learn. You know, in those days, people would learn basically from the people that lived in their community, you know, every, everywhere there, there were more, there were more fiddlers, fiddlers were a dime a dozen, everybody played the fiddle, the fiddle mm -hmm. was the easiest instrument to carry around. It was a cheap instrument. You could buy it out of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. Um, it, it was way more uh, common than even a guitar. You know, today people think of a guitar being the most common instrument. Fiddle was by far more common. And fiddling music and, and, and was part of everybody's life in those days in the sense that, you know, this was before TV and internet, all that. You know, people would get together after a day's work and make music for their own entertainment. 
uh, communities would get together and hold dances. This is how they'd get to know each other. You know, a lot of people would find their husbands and wives at, you know, pie suppers and dances and uh, square dances and, and uh, you know, so much. And, and so fiddling and, and was really a part of the communal life of the people. Well, now that's changed very much. And now fiddlers, old time traditional fiddlers are very, you know, not as common as they once were especially ones that have learned from people who have learned in the old way. In other words, people who learned from people who learned from people who didn't have the internet or recordings or anything like that. And so now we're in a situation where I could go online or you or you, Paul, could go online and, and listen to, you know, fiddling music or any music from around the world and, and, you know, seek to recreate it. So in a way, it's really good, though in another important way, students are no longer learning from the masters as they did before instead they're learning just by the internet and i think that takes something away from the music though i can't quite put my finger on it fair enough so you clearly love the history associated with it what else about fiddling uh really uh gets you excited and, and, and can keep you up at night and uh, help, helps you fall asleep oh yeah man well the music the music is so exciting uh, the, uh, the community, you know, bringing people together and playing together and, and, uh, you know, the music, you know, especially in Missouri, we, the quality to our music, we call it drive, right? And, you know, you, if you're familiar with bluegrass, you know about drive and, and, uh, it's that, it's that, you know, it's that quality of the music that really makes you excited and, and, uh, gets your adrenaline rushing and real, and, you know, so I'd say bringing the people together, laughing, staying up late, and uh, making good music, you know, that's what I really love about it. Uh, when was the last time you played the violin, Aaron? Y you mean like Bach and Beethoven? Yes. <laughs> Let's see here now. Well, I would have to say it would probably been probably back in about 2015, I would say. Will you ever play the violin again? Oh, yeah, I love violin. I love violin. Uh, though it's it's... Uh, yeah, I'll play the violin again. I love I love hymns and Bach and all that. I love all that. <laughs> so, have you been a member of a band? Well, not as much. We had a band in college, Daniel and I, and some others. And well, you're we, the you're the entire reason I, I started playing old time music, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like my my recollection of meeting you is you kind of, you're kind of like uh, dwarves in Lord of the Rings, uh, where <laughs> you know nobody really knows where they came from they just kind of exist and so at some at some point in my life you just existed and i saw i don't remember exactly when we met how i our introduction anything like that i just remember seeing you uh play fiddle miles was playing guitar miles sullivan and you were playing that thing like there's nothing else on the planet that mattered at all like it was just so much raw energy and miles had his head down I couldn't see his facial expression, but I, I assumed that he was making the same expression. And I, and I thought, you know, this is something that I really got to be a part of. And it took this idea of uh, old and kind of dusty music that you only ever hear on old black and white cartoons. And it <laughs> gave it, it injected it with so much life. And I was like, dude, young people can actually play old music and, and <laughs> give it the energy that makes it, it gives it this unspeakable, like not unspeakable, but, hard to describe uh, quality to it. And so, yeah, I, I got a banjo and then uh, started playing with you guys all the time. And you guys were really inclusive 
even though I took away more than I, I gave for a good oh, few that's months. That's not true. <laughs> that's not true. No, that's part of the fun of that's the, all the fun of it is bringing your friends in and anybody can play this music. That's what makes it fun is that anybody can learn it. It's not difficult music. It's uh, one person once told me that it's, um, it's easy to play, but it's hard to play well, you know? Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I had, that was the highlight of, you know, my grad school experience was getting to become really good friends with you, Daniel and Miles and Bobby and a whole slew of other people that we played with really on a daily basis out there. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I look back so fondly on those memories. So. Yeah, and I really think if, if we were to go back in time and not have the internet, not have TV, not have radio, uh, not, even, like, not even have books that often, uh, music would be king. Music would yeah. be all the entertainment. Uh, you know, like the, the clubbing of today where you go out and like, you know, dance in clubs would be <laughs> getting, getting together in like the church house or the barn or whatever and and. <laughs> playing old music and, and square dancing or contra dancing or whatever it is. Yeah. And they still do it today. They still do it today. They know? sure do. So, uh, Paul, you ever been square dancing? Nice. Oh, are you uh, <laughs> muted, sir? A what? Did you, I didn't hear you say, uh, I can hear you now. Yeah. You have been square yeah, dancing? Yeah. Yes, Daniel. <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, Daniel taking a shot at my age. <laughs> hey, dude, I, I've been square. I actually wouldn't have been surprised. I would have been surprised if you. I would not have been surprised if you hadn't. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. So Missouri fiddling is it found in central U.S.? I mean, it go obviously goes beyond Missouri. It sounds like it's in southern Illinois. Where where else is Missouri fiddling played? Well, it's funny. Missouri fiddling. There's kind of a diaspora of Missouri fiddlers because of you know, this globalized society we live in today. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, in 1968, I think it was, um, Cleo Persinger, who's a Missouri fiddler, went down to Weezer, Idaho, and played in the National Fiddlers, 1964, National Fiddlers Contest, and won first place, okay? And uh, so that, and later on, uh, Cyril Stinnett must have been around that same decade, went up into Canada. Cyril Stinnett's another famous Missouri fiddler. Uh, went up into Canada and won the National Canadian Fiddling Contest. Another, another fiddler of that ilk by the name of Pete McMahon won contests all over Missouri and even went down into Tennessee and won fiddling contests down in Tennessee. Now that would have been the, you know, though prior to that, Missouri fiddlers, fiddlers from Missouri had moved west. And you can hear some um, relationship between the fiddling you'd hear in Washington state. Those fiddlers, you know, got, you know, the same fiddlers that moved west they those you know you can hear some relationship between the fiddling you hear in that in that part of the world with the fiddling you hear in missouri in the same way another one of our fiddling greats was by the name of uncle bob walters and he and he's known as missouri you know missouri style fiddling though really what what it's known as is the missouri river valley missouri river valley style fiddling because it was the fiddling that was common around the Missouri River Valley, which goes all the way, you know, where Lewis and Clark went all the way west. And uh, so one of our most famous fiddlers 
from the Missouri Valley region. It was by the name of Uncle Bob Walters and his family came from Tennessee. So this music has a, you know, has a history of moving around the country. Though I would say in today's day and age, the Missouri fiddlers are pretty much stuck in Missouri. I'm one Missouri fiddler that lives in Illinois. Another, there's another Missouri fiddler that lives in Illinois by the name of Charlie Walden has moved from Missouri up to Chicago. There are other Missouri fiddlers. One Missouri fiddler by the name of A.J. Strubus lives up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And, um, and, and another Missouri fiddler by the name of Richard Shoemaker right now lives in Mexico, in Acapulco or something or other. So <laughs> Missouri fiddling can be found in different places. Um, though Missouri fiddling is different from Midwestern fiddling. Mid, uh, and even, I'll just, I'll just add this, that in Missouri, there's, th there's more than three styles of Missouri fiddling. There's Northern Missouri fiddling, there's Central Missouri fiddling, and then there's Ozarks fiddling. And those Ozark fiddlers even spill out into Arkansas. And so I would say in today's day and age, Missouri fiddling is stays pretty well in Missouri, though there are certain exemplars of it who live in, in other places. Very cool. Uh, what's Springfield? Is that part of the Ozarks or is that considered central? Springfield, Missouri? Yeah. That's, that's right at the edge of the, yeah, that's the Ozarks. Yeah, but just the northern part of the Ozarks, I guess, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I spent a few months in central Missouri. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Where Good were time. you? Uh, Fort Leonard Wood. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this was this was right after you uh, graduated college, right, Paul? That's right. This is back in the uh, early nineties. And what were you doing there? I was learning how to be uh, an engineer in the army. Wow! Wow! Yeah. That's great. Fun times. Did you hear any fiddle tunes while you were out there? I did not, but I, one of the two guys I hung out with was uh, from Missouri. I, he was an awesome dude. Loved <laughs> hanging out with him. That's great. Yeah, it's a cool, it's a really cool state. We went uh, once for a ragtime festival over in Sedalia, Missouri, which is yeah. the birthplace of ragtime. It's where Scott Joplin used to do his thing. And Scott Joplin's, I think Scott Joplin's dad was a fiddler. I, Scott Joplin himself was a fiddler. I'm not surprised. I mean, he's a virtuoso on the piano, so. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it's funny so I would be playing sometimes I would start playing uh, fiddle tunes from other traditions like when I picked up a fiddle and I'd bring them to Aaron or send him a recording or something and he'd he'd say invariably he'd tell me that's a Missouri tune <laughs> as if <laughs> as if all the tunes in the world came from Missouri in the first place you know and I believed him no he didn't do that on every single one but there were there were quite a few where you were like yeah dude that's I'd be playing an Irish or like a Scotch Irish tune he yeah. says that's from Missouri, man. That's Missouri <laughs> man. Uh, well, we're proud of our goddamn tunes. I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh man, I love it. Hey, yeah. so Aaron, you grew up. You grew up in Illinois, uh, central or southern? I grew up right in with the metro, the St. Louis metropolitan area. I grew up in the Metro East, so I grew up about an outside, uh, an hour out east of St. Louis. So right in between Central and Southern Illinois. Okay, got you. Tell, tell us what it was like growing up there. Yeah, so Edwardsville, I grew up in a town name called Edwardsville. Edwardsville is what I would call a small town, but what the people who live in the towns around Edwardsville would call a big town, you know. 
And Edwardsville is a town of 25,000 people. It's a college town. And, um, grow, you know, when I was growing up in Edwardsville, it was nothing but cornfields, nothing but cornfields. And I, and I, and, and I've watched it change so much over time. You know, we've got all kinds of strip malls in there now. And, um, you know, it's been developed so much. It looks like Williamsburg now, believe it or not. Uh, and so growing up in Edwardsville, I, you know, it's a great uh, place to raise a family. My parents were, fr- uh, you know, got married in St. Louis and met in St. Louis. And then when they were going to raise a family, they moved to Edwardsville because it was kind of your quintessential little bedroom community out in the country kind of, you know, and we had chickens growing up and rabbits and, and, uh, you know, we had, uh, so it was really a beautiful place to grow up in. And, you know, I've got really fond memories of growing up in Edwardsville. That's awesome, man. So your mom is Costa Rican and that makes you yeah. half Costa Rican. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that part of your background? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. My mom is, uh, actually she's half Costa Rican. Uh, her mother was from North Dakota and uh, was a farm girl from North Dakota and her and her father was from Costa Rica. So my grandpa grew up in Costa Rica and uh, he went to Catholic school back in those days, you know, school as part of the church. And he was the only student to get a scholarship to go to the United States to go to college. And they sent him to NDSU, which was North Dakota, or yeah, they sent him to, uh, to North Dakota to go to college. And that's where he met my grandmother, who was in college there. And uh, he really talked it up to my grandma, made it sound like, you know, Florida or something. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and then so, and he, so he took her back to Costa Rica. And, uh, and so I hear the stories about when they got there, my grandpa, you know, there was, they were going to, you know, build a house or whatever. And the houses down there are made of adobe, which is, you know, straw, mud, cow manure, rocks, you know, baked you in make the these sun. bricks baked in the sun. Yeah. And so they had the structure built, but they didn't have a roof, you know? So, so, uh, my grandmother, was there with two babies, my mom and my mom's sister, my aunt, living in that house without a roof. While my grandpa ended up having went back to the United States, I guess to finish his degree or something, I don't remember. So my grandmother was down in Costa Rica with two babies and my grandpa went back to the United States. And uh, yeah, she never, she never forgot that. So so your grandpa, went to college in North Dakota as a Costa Rican, convinced an American woman to marry him, come back yeah. to Costa Rica, yeah. babies with her, yeah. in a house with no roof, and then <laughs> yeah. went back to America and left it. Yeah. So, so wait a minute, a house with no roof, it rains really hard there from time to time, right? So, yeah, that's Time right. of the year where it rains really hard in Costa Rica. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the drainage, I hope, had to be fantastic. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how that worked. I'll have to go back and ask how that worked exactly. I don't one know. Of those, but one of those two babies was your mom, right? Yeah, one 
one of those two babies was my mom. And I'll just say one thing about uh, roofs of Adobe houses, which is that I've gone up, my aunt who now lives in an Adobe house, the same aunt I just mentioned, a couple of years ago, I went to Costa Rica and I helped her redo that whole roof. And you know, those tiles on the roof, they don't make roofs like ours, you know, that they make them out of these clay tiles. And you know, one tile's like this and the other one, one tile's sort of faced up and the other one's face down and you overlap them like this. So I was climbing up a ladder with all these tiles on my shoulder and uh, making this roof. So yeah, I don't know if they maybe had, I don't know what the story, I don't know how, what happened in that situation with that roof though. She, my grandmother always emphasized the fact that there was no roof. <laughs> it, it could be that she had no roof for like a week and she stayed with somebody else while they were putting a roof on. But I, in my mind, I had it that she was uh, without a roof for maybe a year or two. Yeah, I think that was how she said the story was, yeah. <laughs> so that's a, Go ahead, Daniel. I was just going to say, that's that's true love, man. That's like a fairy tale story right there. Well, it was at that time that she, she was uh, contemplating divorcing. <laughs> <laughs> but she really stuck it out, you know, so that was good. She stayed in Costa Rica then, you know, from then on and learned Spanish. She didn't speak a word of Spanish, you know. And uh, she had to learn Spanish down there, and and yeah, that was that was the story. Is your grandmother still around? Yeah, she's she's about she's got to be ninety years older older than that, and um, she is uh, right now. She, yeah, she's still around. She's kicking. She's doing great, and uh, I hope she's around for another twenty years. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so she's in Costa Rica now. Yeah, she's down in Costa Rica now. Yeah. Oh, wow. So she's been there about 70 years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. She yeah. has to be the only person in Costa Rica from North Dakota originally. That's probably <laughs> I, true. I think you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how, many, how, much have you, how much did you visit and how much like, have you been there in your life? Yeah. So when I was growing up, we would go down there and spend – the funny thing about Latin American families is when they come visit, they stay forever. <laughs> so <laughs> we would, uh, you know, my mom and my brothers and I would go down there, you know, and stay three or, you know, three or four months sometimes. Oh, wow. And then my aunts, you know, my aunt or my grandmother, or whoever would then, you know, one year we'd go down there, the next year they'd come up here and stick around for four months. And my dad could not, my dad hated that, you know. <laughs> and uh and i remember that was always really something else how you know we would stay down there for months and months and they would come up here and stay up here for months so i we would i got a good amount of visiting through that way you know mm -hmm. then later when i was in college uh my first year of college you know i really wanted to learn spanish because i never learned spanish growing up from my mother and so I was taking Spanish courses and I decided I wanted to do a study abroad, a summer study abroad in Costa Rica. So I went and lived in Costa Rica for three months with a host family that didn't speak English. My family in Costa Rica does speak English. So I was forced to learn Spanish living and I wanted to taking classes in Costa Rica that summer. You know, later on, I'd go back and stay with my grandmother in the summer. Uh, I went and took, I took two 
courses through the York University in Toronto, Canada, where I went to Costa Rica and stayed for a summer. And then later in grad school, I did an internship in Costa Rica, living there with a host family in the summer. So I've spent a good amount of time in Costa Rica, but only ever about three months at a time, you know. Mm -hmm. It sounds like something that you've continually gone back to. Like you didn't just go as a kid and then stop. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, we always knew that we were Costa Rican, but, you know, my mother spoke English perfectly fluently as a second language. And, and, uh, you know, and though none of us spoke Spanish, my brothers, nor my dad, none of us spoke Spanish. So we always wanted, I always wanted to learn Spanish so that I could understand that part of my family that when I went to Costa Rica, I could meet my cousins and know what they're saying and, and learn about the history and, you know, and, and, all of that. I was, I promised my grandfather that I would learn Spanish and he died the Christmas of my freshman year in college. So right at the semester point, he died. And it was that, it it was that next summer that I went down to live with that host family and really seriously learn Spanish. So I fulfilled my promise to my grandfather, but I wasn't ever able to speak to my grandfather in Spanish, which is something I always regret, you know? But but you get to share it with your uh, your mom, uh, who when I came and visited you, I, you guys would always be uh, going back and forth in Spanish, talking about ingredients or uh, vegetables that are growing <laughs> in the garden. Um, and I always thought that was the, I always thought that was the coolest thing. And your dad, uh, I never knew if he really understood, but he always would just nod in comprehension, as if he understood everything going on. <laughs> Yeah, no, he doesn't understand a word of Spanish. He only knows <laughs> when we were growing up, you, you know, he'd say, you want more milk? See or no? See or no? You know, and see or no means yes or no. <laughs> Are you done? See or no? <laughs> did, your, uh, did your brothers ever pick up Spanish? No, they never did. They never learned it. Are you the uh, middle or the youngest? I'm the youngest. Okay, because you had referenced an older brother. So, uh, yeah, got it. Yep. Do, do you like being the youngest? Yeah, it's it's got it's got its ups and downs, you know. <laughs> Though overall, I like it. I think I got the best deal, you know. <laughs> yeah, the oldest kid uh, probably your oldest brother probably thinks he's the experimental kid, like I do. The middle kid, oh, yeah. they complain about everything. I haven't met a middle kid who doesn't. <laughs> and then the youngest yeah. one uh, gets the benefit of the experiences of the older siblings. Oh yeah, I I always tell a funny. Well, I was gonna say I always tell I always tell a funny story about you know my dad growing up was a real hard ass, real hard ass, and uh, but when he turned sixty, he quit caring about he quit caring about anything. Yeah, he didn't nothing. So you know he turned sixty. That was right when I was in high school. So I remember. When my oldest brothers were going through high school, they were put through the ringer, you know. I, I remember my brother, Andrew, the middle brother, did bad on some test or something. And, uh, you know, my dad made him come over. After school, Andrew would have to bring all his books to my dad's office and sit there and study and uh, fill out job applications. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, <laughs> whereas when I was in high school, there was, you know, any, you know, anything goes, it didn't even matter. <laughs> so, so he turned 60s. It's like, yeah, I'm done. 
He was done. <laughs> uh, hey, back to Costa Rica real quickly. Uh, besides family, obviously you have a, a massive uh, affinity for your family, which I think is awesome. Uh, what, what do you like most about Costa Rica? Let's see. Well, I would say the thing I like the most about Costa Rica, well, it's beautiful. The biodiversity, it, you know, the, the nature is, is remarkable. Uh, I think Costa Rica has the most biodiversity per square hectare, square mile than any other nation in the world. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's species of insects and plants that have never even been discovered before that are there and, in Costa Rica. So I think that is, it's really, you know, a, a bit of a treasure that we have there in such a small little country. And in uh, and, and Costa Rica, the other thing I'm really proud of Costa Rica for being is always throughout its history, Costa Rica has been a very forward thinking country. And um, in, in 1948, Costa Rica abolished its military. It had a military in 1948, it abolished its military. And, uh, and, and invested all that money that at one time was going towards its military, towards literacy programs and universal health care and, um, you know, and, and, and uh, housing and, and uh, you know, cultural programs. And, and so I think those, those are some of the things that I really like most about Costa Rica. Yeah, my, my experience is not vast in Central America, but it, it it's seems that it is one of the more advanced, if not the most advanced uh, country uh, in Central America. And yeah, it sounds the like uni- they- Go ahead. The University of Costa Rica, the national university there in Costa Rica is known as the best university in all of Central America. Yeah, so they're, they're very proud, they're very proud people, you know, set of people and, and, uh, and, um, you know, the Mex in, in Mexico, you know, is, the soccer team in Mexico and the soccer team in Costa Rica are always bitter rivals. <laughs> Is the Costa Rican team good? Oh yeah. They're phenomenal. Oh. I remember it was only a few, I don't remember how many years ago, but I do remember Costa Rica made it into the world cup. Yeah. Yep. Costa Rica is not a, a densely or highly populated place, right? Very small country, very small country. It's got a great coffee, too. And and surfing is amazing. Yep, and good surfing. Great beaches. (laughs) Very cool. So uh, you guys were playing while I had internet issues. What 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 instruments were you playing? Oh, I got the old banjo out. Played a little bit of uh, Kansas City Rag, um, (laughs) which is a Missouri – it's a Missouri field tune. It's not exactly a rag, but – um, I could play it. It's just, it's a crappier banjo. Um, hey, Dan, Daniel, I'm getting a message that says you, your bandwidth is really low. I, I, I added really. It just says it's low. Oh, really? Mine? Okay, hang on. Yes. Can you guys hear me okay? Like, is, is my audio coming out smooth? It's ish. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, th- uh, Aaron, this is a move that Daniel makes about every three. Uh, <laughs> Recording. Does he get better internet somewhere else? Yeah, he, he's going to a different part of his apartment. Yeah, my, <laughs> downstairs, I, if I get closer to the router, I usually get a little bit better signal. Oh, yeah, I heard oh. that Wi-Fi doesn't do good going up and down. It mostly does good crossways, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah like this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's why it's good that you live in a single-story house. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, okay, let's see. Aaron, you, uh, I feel like ever since you were old enough to think about stuff critically, you've been like trying to be a force for change, you know, in the world. And, and you've seen stuff and, and you've wanted to improve the world and, and change things that you saw that were unfit. And um, one of the ways that that manifested itself was your research in your undergraduate program, which, what did you major in again? I majored in sociology and anthropology. Sociology and anthropology. So obviously there's a fascination there with humans and your research as a uh, senior, your, your, your thesis was about um, drones, but it wasn't just about drones and the drone program. It was about how to effectively change attitudes and how to uh, influence people socially uh, and influence their, their ideas. So it was almost like half a political discourse on drones and the drone program and half a uh, psychology or anthropology uh, research on, on the, uh, on like perception change and attitude change. So what is the, uh, so how, how did that go? And like, how did you decide on that body of work? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. There's a lot to unpack there too. Um, so just to, just for the audience, the, when we're talking about drones, you know, nowadays we got all kinds of drones, you know, you got the drones you fly in your backyard, the drones that are delivering stuff for Amazon, um, you know, drones, uh, yeah, I don't, I can't even think of any other drones, but the drones at that time that I was studying were, you know, were known as, you know, were the drone program as part of the global war on terror. You know, these were like the right. Reaper, the Reaper drones, you know, armed drones, right? Drones that were used to carry out the targeted killing program of uh, the Obama administration. And, and, you know, I had always, ever since, you know, my family had always been a political family. And, um, and I remember 9-11 very vividly in my mind, you know, even though I was just a child. And, you know, that moment had such a profound effect on American society, you know. And, uh, and really, I, I suppose, the, really quite a bit of the world. And, um, and so when I was in college, I had a professor, one of my sociology professors was a man who was from Pakistan. And you know, the, the drone program was being carried out in Afghanistan and, and in, um, in uh, Iraq and other places. And, and you know, in Pakistan, it, you know, was related to that. And uh, so really, I, I became interested in studying this issue of drone warfare through taking that course, taking a course with that professor and, and, and through, you know, the um, really through the anti-war position that, you know, I, of, of my family and that I held too. And so in those days, 2013, 2014, it wasn't common knowledge that it wasn't public knowledge that the Obama administration had been using drones to conduct targeted killings. It only became, you know, it only became public in, in about 2014 when it was, when the program was transferred from, I think from the CIA to the army. And, 
so it was, it was at that time that I was studying the way that the armed drones, the role that they played in the global war on terrorism. And uh, yeah, and so I, I was interested in that and, and that's what sort of prompted that study. Okay, and, and tell us a little bit about the study and uh, the symposium that you set up alongside it and how you had to, like how you organized all that and pulled all these people together. Sure, yeah, so what you're referring to is the teach-in we had or a symposium that we had. And what that symposium was, was part of my research. You know, I'd been reading about drones. I've been reading about the global war on terrorism and I've been reading about United States foreign policy and what the Obama administration had been doing and what the Bush administration had been doing. And, um, you know, and, and reading about the global war on terrorism and the use of drones and the collateral damage, you know, it, it really, you know, decidedly put me against the war, you know, and put me against the use of drones. And in my mind, I thought that if, if other students like me knew, understood the effect that this war was having on the lives of not only the people in Iraq and Afghanistan and other countries where we are, but also the folks, you know, who fly the drones, the service members, their families, the lasting effect that this war is having on so many people. I figured if these students only understood what I understood, they would have to be, have to have these strong feelings that I had about the war. And so I sought to see if that, if that was the case. You know, I mean, in my, in my experience at Truman, at the college I was at there, not many students were politically involved. Not many students were thinking about these issues or thinking about the war on terrorism. And, uh, and even in many of our classes, it wasn't discussed. You know, the professors weren't talking about it or thinking of it, to the students at least. And so, um, you know, I'd seen a documentary on the subject and I, and I was talking to my dad and he said, you should show that documentary at your college. You should show the documentary. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to show that documentary. And, uh, and one of the folks that was interviewed in the documentary on drone warfare was Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who's a very well-known, outspoken, anti-war, you know, war critic, and uh, who's a teacher at William & Mary and who's a retired colonel and who was the chief of staff to Colin Powell during from 2001 to 2005 or something like that. And so my dad said, you ought to call it, you know, send him a letter and see if he'll come to Truman to give a speech. So I did that and I contacted Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. I asked him if he'd come give a speech and he said, yes, he would and he'd do it for free. So I organized a, um, a documentary film screening where I brought, you know, got all these students brought up, you know, we watched the documentary film and we discussed it. And then I organized for the next night after that for Colonel Wilkerson to give a talk and uh, to bring the community in and to, uh, he'd give a talk and then have a discussion afterwards. And in order to relay this into my research, the paper I was writing for college, my senior thesis on drone warfare, I figured I'd look to see how these students' ideas changed after being exposed to this information. So I created two surveys that asked them, you know, what are your ideas about, I had these questions lined out, what do you think about this topic? You know, I had a number of questions. 
And so they'd fill out that survey. And then after watching the documentary or after listening to Professor Wilkerson, after they, you know, on their way out the door, they'd fill out another survey. And then I would see how, if their attitudes changed at all or, or what effect these, this documentary or this presentation or what effect learning about the drone program had on these students. Do you remember so any uh, sort of the second half of my. Sorry. Do you remember any specific questions uh, that you asked on those surveys? Yeah, let's see. You know, I think, you know, on the one hand, I asked just demographic questions, you know, how old are you, where are you, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then I asked, um, you know, let's see, boy, that was a number of years ago. You know, on a scale of one to five, are you in favor, you know, of using armed drones in the global war on terrorism, you know, or on a scale of one to five, do you think, you know, I can't remember, Daniel. Yeah. I, don't, I don't remember the question that I asked, but they were but, along those lines. Right, right, okay. Yeah. Um, so you uh, had this whole um, symposium with the document screening, and then you also had Lawrence Wilkerson actually come out, and you, the logistical hall and lift for you to do that must've been like kind of a lot. And, and, uh, but, but you really just like strung it all together. And was it a one man show or were you doing this as a team? Well, in a way it was a one man show in another way it was a team effort. Um, it was, you know, I would, I went around to, um, all the, I went, I went and talked to all the different professors, all the chairs of departments, and because I was trying to collect an honorarium to give to Professor Wilkerson, you know, a gift of money to thank him for coming to speak to us. And uh, so I went and talked to the deans. I went and talked to, you know, all these different people, administrators in the, in the, in the university, asking for them to sponsor the event and, and contribute some money. And quite a few of them did. And, uh, you know, I'd have to tell them why I'm doing it and, you know, invite them to invite their students and give their students extra credit for going to the event and, you know, and uh, yeah. And so it took a little bit of organizing, but we pulled it off. That's awesome. And you got no academic credit for that. That was purely uh, something you were highly motivated to do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And so what was the outcome uh, for the post uh, Colonel Wilkerson talk survey? Or mine well, the outcome was really that, you know, the outcome was that for the people that had the experience of, you know, it was a profound impact, right? So Professor Wilkerson is a very engaging speaker. And, you know, the, the amount of experience that he has from being in the military for, you know, his entire career to teaching at the War College uh, to being within the administration, you know, a very, from being Colonel, you know, from being Colin Powell's chief of staff, right-hand man in one of the most fateful presidential administrations of our time, you know, he's, you know, the amount, the breadth of, of, you know, so when this man gives a talk, it's really something to see. In fact, I'd encourage everybody to look on YouTube to type in 
uh, Lawrence Wilkerson to YouTube and there's plenty of him speaking on YouTube and, and I would encourage everybody to listen to it because he is a very powerful speaker. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard his name. I, I don't know a ton about him, but Aaron, anything you can do to help us get him on our podcast, I'd appreciate it. Oh yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll see what I can do. Cool. And he's still at William and Mary? Yeah, so he teaches at William and Mary. He teaches a course on what he calls national security decision making. And so his course tracks throughout history the uh, you know what he calls these fateful decisions, which are decisions to send American boys and girls. What he says, you know, to send American boys and girls overseas to die for state purposes. These are, you know, what he calls fateful decisions. So he goes throughout American history and looks at how are these decisions made and what influences these decisions to be made. Back to Paul's question of like the results of the survey, you know, the people yeah. walking out, had their attitudes changed like on average to be more one way or the other? Sure. Well, I'll say that my survey was not particularly sophisticated. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so though, although my survey results did show that there was, you know, in a, there was a, a difference. In other words, the, these, these speeches made a difference on the way the students thought about the war. And, um, though what was more telling than the, uh, surveys themselves was the fact that after Professor Wilkerson's presentation, students and community members and faculty members stayed until midnight and Professor Wilkerson stayed until midnight that night having conversations and they were, ha and they were having conversations right there among each other. And for weeks after that presentation, students would approach me on campus and tell me that that was one of the most powerful presentations we have had on campus, you know. And the, and the vice president of student affairs wrote me a letter congratulating me on my research. And um, so I think that regardless of what the surveys themselves showed, in my personal experience, I noticed that, yes, it had a profound impact on, the, on that campus. There was a reporter there. They wrote a story in the paper about it. And, uh, and yeah, it was, I it, think it was... And you could have just, you know, done a purely academic research paper on the fact that the, the drone program, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, it's not a black and white program. Uh, there, it's, it's just, there's nuance to it. It's, it, yeah. it. There is still collateral, even if they say there isn't. And there's mental health concerns. And, uh, you know, just all of the things that I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that, that Professor Wilkerson brought up. Uh, in his concerns for the yeah. drone program. You could have just written a purely academic thesis on that and defended it in front of three or four professors and then had it go into the void uh, where all senior theses go. But instead, you decided to really incorporate this sort of social uh, operation around it, which sort of started like, it, it kind of rippled out into a little bit of a, of a social wave through your community. You know, if you had the reporter there and professors sending you letters and students walking up to you saying, Hey, that, that was really cool. So it's, uh, you know, not just doing the academic part of it, but having that, the intersection with using people's social nature to, you know, 
spread the word. I, I think that's a, that, it, it was a cool way to do both of those things. Oh, I totally agree with you. Definitely. Very effectively uh, political, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yeah. And I imagine Wilkerson being a, a career military guy, career army in particular, he's probably approaching it very uh, rationally, uh, very logically. And I'm sure he supported whatever arguments he was making. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He's one of the, what, you know, you could bring any, you could bring anybody to campus to speak out against the war, but to bring Colonel Wilkerson, it, you know, that's a man who know who has experience, you know, who was there, you know, he overseed, he oversaw the, um, you remember when Colin Powell made his presentation to the, U, to the United Nations? Yeah, uh, that, Colonel that, Wilkerson, that, that, that speech uh, arguably led to us going to Iraq in particular. Yes. Obviously, we were already in Afghanistan when he made the speech, but that was a pivotal moment for sure. Yes, that was a pivotal moment. And that was in the, 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 that speech, Colonel Wilkerson was in charge of the putting together of that speech and, and all the intelligence behind it. Uh, he was, he was, he was the one who did that. So to bring him in to speak is there's no, nobody else can speak to the issue the Iraq war like Colonel Wilkerson can, in my opinion. Uh, Powell, Wilkerson, and maybe three or four other guys. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah, that, that uh, speech Colin Powell uh, gave led to lots and lots of folks going overseas. Uh, and I think Colin Powell and I imagine uh, Colonel Wilkerson, uh, I think they both regret it that, yeah. that day. But they came, right. they, they came at it from an honest place. Yeah. 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 And I'd encourage everybody, all the listeners out there in radio land to, and to, to please do look up professor Wilkerson. He, you know, talks on cable news. He talks all over the place and especially to listen to some of his talks regarding the lead up to the Iraq war. If you want a real education, that would be, that'd be one place to begin. Yeah. And I would love to add more to this conversation, Aaron, but I, my senior thesis was on, Elizabeth Gurley Brown being thrown out of the ACLU for being communist in the 1930s. Oh, really? I can't really, I, I had to get that in there. Sorry. <laughs> now, you know, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that. Can you, no, no, can you tell no, me? No, no, no. I, 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 it was a long time ago. I forgot. Most <laughs> <of that. laughs> well, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Uh, same here. It's nowhere. This was before the internet guys. <laughs> oh no. So, uh, hey, so go ahead, Paul. I was going to say, Aaron, what are you doing these days? So Kurt, today, um, today I'm working as a policy analyst for the Illinois State Senate staff. So what, what does that entail? Like, well, I, uh, day to day, you say? Yeah. Um, so what that really entails is on a day to day basis, you know, in the Senate, you know, are, we've got, you know, um, the, you know, in this, their committees, right. Com different committees on different issues. Um, you know, for example, the executive committee, the committee on pensions, the committee on local government affairs, the committee on public health, all sorts of committees. So I help staff, um, three committees. I'm helping to staff the executive committee, local government committee, and, uh, the committee on pensions. 
And, uh, and so what it really involves is, uh, you know, all these, all this legislation gets proposed and, and filed. And then my job is to read the legislation, analyze it, write up what it does, what its effects are, how it changes the law, what the current law is, you know, the cost, all the background, where is this initiative coming from, who's pushing it, why, and then to call up all the different stakeholders involved in it and to get their position on the, on the bill and to summarize all this information into an analysis and then to go to the committee chairperson, the committee you know, leader, one of, and to brief them on what each of these pieces of legislation does. Uh, I think that's really what the job entails. It sounds like a ton of work. How many briefings do you do, say, in a month? Let's see. Well, I started this job, you know, in September of this year. And, uh, you know, the legislative session in Illinois only occurs for a few months out of the year. So we, I got in, uh, I, I, had, I had a few weeks in the legislative session and then coronavirus hit. Oh, wow. And, uh, and since then, I've been working from home. So the, so though before coronavirus did hit, I would, you know, I was brief, you know, we would brief the um, local government committee, you know, we, that was every, every week, you know, each committee is every week, you know, and so before we go to committee, before we go to the committee hearing, I'd go to the senator's office and right then and there, you know, just a few minutes before the committee say, this is what we're looking at in committee today, you know, and, uh, and go from there. Do you like the work? Do you think you'll do it oh, for a I long time? It. it was, it's phenomenal work. I really love it. I love how stimulating it is, you know, and fast paced having to deal with curveballs and all kinds of stuff. Uh, do you ever have uh, or do you have a desire to become a politician someday? You know, I've thought about it. I have thought about it. Um, I think it would be incredibly difficult in terms of getting getting in, into it. You know, you'd have to be bankrolled somehow um, if it's by the unions or if it's by some association of the cha you know the chamber of commerce or whatever. In order to do it, you got to be bank. You know, you kind of have to be bankrolled. I mean, shoot. Otherwise, what would you do? Have to fundraise? And I, I don't think I'm any good at that. So, you know, I'd like to do it, though I don't think it'd be, as of right now, I don't think it's possible. You, you could be uh, competing for uh, the candidacy or the position of president against one of our former uh, episode guests, uh, Sarah Walt. Oh, yeah, I listened to that episode. Yeah, yeah tw 2048. Yeah, that would be have a, a wall v Albrecht. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think so. Sarah and Aaron know each other, and they ended up oh. texting after the uh, after Sarah's episode. Oh, and nice. I think it'd be awesome to have them both on uh, for a Let's little bit it. of a chat. Yeah, I I'm in. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about one more thing uh, before we start wrapping up. Um, you know, I I don't know that anyone listening to this has not ordered something off of Amazon in their lifetime, yeah. especially not in the last couple of months. So I think that everyone would be interested to hear from you a little bit about um, what it's like to work in an Amazon warehouse, which is, that's what you did after, you know, upon receiving a master's degree from one of the most prestigious institutions in the land, 
you went back home to Edwardsville, Illinois, and you, you, you signed up as a, as a worker at an Amazon warehouse. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for asking about that. Yeah. After I graduated college, I remember, um, or graduate school, I remember that was so mentally taxing, so difficult, especially at William and Mary ship that, um, I remember thinking, boy, I want to do some work where I don't have to use my brain, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Though besides that, I couldn't find a job anyway. So I went home and uh, got a job in, at the Amazon warehouse on my dad. I remember my dad told me, he said, hey, you know, it might, it might be fun. Uh, he said, uh, you know, they're a really uh, new, you know, state-of-the-art outfit at Amazon. You know, so when I was <laughs> applying for work at Amazon, I thought it would be like working at Google where you sit on a beanbag all day. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> and they got uh, – ping pong tables and free lunch and everything you know boy was i surprised when they when they put me in that hot truck and told me you see this truck this one and the six down the line those are yours and so there i was loading those trucks all all day long yeah loading six or seven trucks yeah Mm -hmm. What what were the working conditions like Oh, it was, it was tough work. I'll tell you, they were, they made you work. They did. I remember, um, I remember, uh, well, one time we, you know, they had like a pizza party, you know how they sometimes do. And, uh, and so at lunch, you know, they brought us pizza and we were eating pizza and I ate a butt and I, I figured I was going to get my money's worth of this pizza. (laughs) So boy, I ate that pizza. And then I had to go back in that, those trucks and load those trucks. And you can't load trucks after eating that much pizza at all. And so, you know, these boxes come down the line. It could be anything, you know, for anything from something very, from like a 45 pound plate that you put on a bench press, you know, to a toothbrush or whatever else it is. And (laughs) you don't know what's in, you know, 50 pound bag of whatever dog food or whatever. And uh, you don't know what's in those boxes. And this shit comes down so fast and you got a pot, you know, it's like playing Tetris in the back of this truck, piling it all the way up to the top. They'd give you this little step stool and say, you got to step up on this step stool to get the stuff all the way to the top. And, uh, you know, but this should be coming down the line so fast. There's no way you could get the box, walk up the step stool, you know, fit it in on top. So I always tell people, if you buy something expensive like a computer, do not buy it from Amazon because the way people throw this shit around, you wouldn't believe it. It, I'm surprised not every laptop shows up broken from Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everything I order on Amazon is uh, pretty durable and I would never take something delicate and and hope that whoever's working in all these gazillions of warehouses, yeah. uh, thousands of trucks. Yeah. There's no way you can guarantee quality control for that. Yeah. And I'll say that if I may, just on the topic of working conditions at Amazon, uh, you know, many people have been probably reading in the newspapers and stuff. Well, probably not in the mainstream newspapers, but in, uh, in independent newspapers that about the working conditions at Amazon. And uh, even now today, you know, in, in the age of COVID-19, there's been quite a few wildcat strikes that have happened at Amazon warehouses across the United States and, 
And in some places, the Amazon workers are, you know, working to form unions. Um, the thing that's most taxing about working at Amazon, other than the fact that, you know, it's, 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 it's high pressure work, fast paced work is the, is the mental, the mental strain of the work, you know, it's repetitive, repetitive work, um, where, you know, there's no, you're not allowed, you're not allowed to stand around and talk to your buddies, you know, um, they, uh, you know, they, you'd go, you know, you have to, you, you're, you stay on task at every moment They and they measure this, right? So they, everybody has a little scanning gun in their hand and, uh, you know, whatever you do, you know, say for example, if you're getting an item off the shelf, you scan the item, you know, and then whenever you go uh, get your next item, you scan that and the computer measures the amount of time in between scans. And for any bit of time that exceeds a certain amount of time, that's considered time off task. So, and then at the end of the day, if you've collected a certain amount of time off task, you know, more than 30 minutes, you're given a uh, demerit, a warning. And, uh, you know, if you get three warnings, you're, you're fired. And if you, if you are the one who has the, you know, if you do have however much time off task at the end of the day, you have the, you have to go talk to the manager and the manager reams your ass and tells you what in the hell were you doing? You know? <laughs> so, so you can't, you know, you got to be careful going to the bathroom, you know, going to the bath, you know, you got, you can't waste time at any moment. You can't talk to your buddies. If you go to the bathroom, you got to be quick. The other thing is that, you know, there are so many people in these warehouses, you may be on your job, but with all the people in the way, you're still racking up time off task. And besides that part of the, the pressure of the work, I remember a girl got in our warehouse, you know, you'd, we'd arrive at seven o'clock in the morning and they'd have this music on blasting loud, you know, blasting loud, this music, rock and roll music playing loud. And they, you know, be clapping their hands saying, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. We got to get fast start, fast start, fast start, fast start, fast start. And one girl who walked in, happened to walk in late, everybody was in such a rush to fast start that one of the fellows ran this girl over in his, in the, the thing, the picker, they called a picker, you know, one of those the the it's like a forklift forklift yeah yeah one of the warehouse pieces of machinery ran this girl over ran over her leg and broke her leg and she was screaming caught under the forklift thing the cherry picker and nobody could hear her scream because everybody because of fast start they were playing the music so loud and so how long did you last in that job i was there for a year in about three months. That's longer than I think the average person stays there. It has to be, right? I think so. Yeah. I was of the of my cohort of hires, there was probably about twenty of us hired. I was by the time I left, there were only two of us left. Yeah, I bet. A number of them got hurt. One of them hurt his back. Um, you know, a number of them got hurt. Wow. Wow. 
Hey, so uh, I, there's no way to transition to this smoothly. Sure. So we started with the St. Louis Blues Championship baseball cap that you're wearing. Yeah. Uh, my, my alma mater uh, ended up winning the NCAA basketball championship. And no so kidding. One silver lining of COVID-19 is the Blues are probably going to be the champs for two years. I'll take it. I'll take it. Why not? Unless we think the NHL's somehow going to miraculously play later in the year. Right. I don't know. I don't know what to think. Yeah, I don't either. Oh there, man, that's awesome. pretty funny. Hey, so if we if we wanted to go down to Costa Rica, you could uh, hook us up. Oh, I'll take you down. All right, I love it. Dude, Aaron and I have talked about how when we get older, we're just going to uh, build a cabin out there, you know, buy some land and, and farm some stuff out there, <laughs> throw some coffee or something. And, and you, I think it'd be great. And you know that you need a roof for the house. Right. That we Bam. know. <laughs> we know that now. <laughs> yeah, um, well, go ahead, Paul. No, Close say, us out. No, no. So fiddle music uh, – I, I, I kind of want you guys to play right now, but you, you guys seem to be a little reluctant to play. Well, I'd like to, but my fiddle's down in Edwardsville, so I don't have it with me right now. You're without your fiddle? Yeah, I decided to leave it home. <laughs> well, hey, so I, I know you, you were talking about employment and health benefits, but do you ever see yourself playing music professionally? No, not the kind of music I play. There's not too much of a market for it. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. But you really enjoy doing it, so it's all it's all good. Yeah, and uh, and, and it's also, I mean, I, th I think it's really cool that you worked at an Amazon warehouse, um, meaning like you worked a minimum wage job because Pete McMahon, you didn't mention this when you were talking about him before, but one of the Missouri greats, you always say he put tires on car for a living. You know, yeah. he, he went all over the, the state and even states beyond and, and won contests, but yeah. his day-in, day day-out job was blue-collar, you know, honest, hard work. And so yeah. I think it, it adds like credibility. It's some kind of credibility to, to who you are as a fiddler, not just as a person that you've worked in, in these in a minimum wage, like blue collar condition. I don't know if that's something that you were cognizant of while you were doing it, but that's something I noticed. Well, thanks a lot, Daniel. Thanks. Well, thanks a lot. He certainly uh, earned the cutoff flannel shirt. <laughs> you better <laughs> yeah. believe I earned it. <laughs> yeah. Now get outside and chop some of those trees down, you know. <laughs> so, Aaron, uh, a question we like to ask all our guests is, uh, as a 25-year-old, would you rather have gone to the military or tried to become a stand-up comedian? Yeah, I've heard that you ask your guests this question, and I've always wondered why. <laughs> well, you can't answer a question with a question. That's not allowed on this podcast. <laughs> Though what is it? How come? Why is this you guys' question? Uh, I have I no it, idea. I think it came up no, it naturally. Came, it came up in the original, the original episode zero. Yeah. Oh, it's, really? Did it? Yeah. So the original, yeah, the original episode zero is no longer uh, on the airwaves. But I, I think it just came out of conversation there, and we've stuck with it ever since. Yeah. Well, Daniel was thinking about ways to struggle. Uh, yeah. If I recall, and I think Daniel brought up comedy. And then I got on this little rant about how he should actually go do stand-up comedy. I remember that. I do remember that. Yeah. I don't think I don't think Daniel would be able to pull off the stand-up comedy. Aaron, you're you're such a douche, dude. <laughs> dude, well we could we could tag team the stand-up comedy, and I think it would work. But neither of us by ourselves. Oh no! Shut shut up, dude. I think that you'd be really good at it. 
Um, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to think that I'd be good at it. And, you know, to answer your question directly, I would say comedy off, you know, off, off the cuff. Though when you really think of it, you know, doing a comedy show every weekend for six months with an audience of a hundred people working on material, that could be pretty brutal. You know, if you don't get your laugh, you get booed right off stage, you know, and that's everybody in the whole town who knows that you're not funny. <laughs> yeah, you grind away for six days, writing, practicing, hoping, and maybe your, your, your significant other or a couple of your friends think you're funny, but you get out in front of those strangers. Strangers. And you're not, yeah. And it depends on, I mean, think, imagine this, that it depends on how the crowd is feeling. I mean, so many variables, how the crowd is feeling. I mean, shoot, what you look like when you first walk up, you know? Like, I heard a story, I don't remember who it was, though I remember hearing a story of a comedian who walked out on stage, took one look at the audience and said, no, nah, I'm not doing this. <laughs> and walked off. Uh, well, I mean, that's the other thing it takes. You have to have a thick skin. So he, he was predicting his skin was going to be pierced pretty. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, very Though cool. at the same time, I would also want to add that, you know, um, military service would be extremely difficult. I imagine I haven't done it. Um, I also know that it'd probably be extremely rewarding. You know, you know, many people talk about the folks that they serve with in the military being closer than family, you know, and uh, that I respect, you know, I respect the ones who are able to hack it and that I think I wouldn't be able to. I don't know. I think uh, everybody's got some inner strength. They just haven't tapped into. That's probably right. <laughs> Very cool. Hey, Aaron, it's been great talking to you, man. Uh, Really interesting story. Uh, passion is certainly a big part of who you are. Uh, stay passionate and uh, go after thank you, whatever Paul. you want to go after, man. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Really, I've enjoyed this. It's been so much fun getting to talk to you both. And, and really, it's an honor you know, for me to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, man. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.